Well, we continue our series through the seminal book of the Apostle Paul, the letter to the church in Rome. We've been in Romans since the fall, and we continue our study by looking at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we looked at last week, we looked at the beginning of this passage, which spoke to the glory and the beauty and the greatness of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And we're going to continue our series by staying in Romans chapter 9 and continuing to explore the sovereignty of God in salvation by looking at chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. But before I read that passage, just for way of recapping briefly, it's important to recap and summarize the foundation that was laid last week in Romans chapter 9. Paul established in Romans 9 a few things last week. One, God's election and predestination of some, we clarified not of all, but of some is completely unconditional. That it had nothing to do with their good works. He uses the illustration of the twins of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And neither does our election or predestination have anything as to do with a result of human power, of wisdom, or our free will. It is an election and a predestination that is completely unconditional. The second point that we established last week is that in light of this, God is fair and he is just. We established that justice speaks to the fairness of God because mercy is not obligated from God. See, God would only be unfair if he withheld something that he owes us. And we clearly establish that God does not owe us, he does not owe any of us mercy. And therefore, God is fair and he is just. And then lastly, we establish this, that we should not be amazed that the doctrine of God's unconditional grace should not leave us with a feeling God does not save all, but instead, when we truly comprehend the great salvation of God, it should leave us amazed that God saves any of us at all. So let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. This is, brothers and sisters, the very word of God. You say... You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory 
for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not by him beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And on this Lord's day, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers. He labored faithfully in London in the 19th century, preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, preaching the gospel of God's free, unconditional, yet sovereign grace for many years. But in Charles Spurgeon's memoirs, he recalls the days just after his conversion to Christ. And he says this in his memoirs as he's reflecting on those early days and upon his conversion. He said, when I came to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. I thought that I sought the Lord earnestly. I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. One Sunday evening while I was sitting in the house of God, I must confess I was not thinking about the preacher's sermon. But what instead I was thinking about was this. The Lord struck me on that Sunday evening, Charles, how did you come to become a Christian? You sought the Lord, but did someone first seek you? I thought to myself, I pray. But how did I come to pray? I read the scriptures, but what has induced me to want to discover God in his word? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace was opened up to me. And from that doctrine of God's sovereign grace, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly and solely to God. You see, the very thing that changed the life and ministry of Charles Spurgeon was the day he discovered that although, yes, he made a choice, he discovered that there was a choice made long before his choice ever came to be. And when you begin to discover and realize that your life and your salvation, that God is at the bottom of it all, then your life will never be the same. So in light of this greatness and sovereignty and the reality that God is at the bottom of it all, Let's continue our study of Romans chapter 9 together. In light of the greatness and the sovereignty of God, Paul in this passage wants to remind us of three things, three things in particular here in this great passage. The first thing is this, God is God and we are not. 
in light of this great study in the sovereignty of God and the greatness and the bigness of God, Paul wants to make it very clear in this passage that we just read together, this simple truth. God is God and we are not. And until we get that simple but profound truth, we will never be able to fully embrace the sovereignty of God, particularly the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it's in verses 19 through 23 in particular that he wants to hammer home this true reality that God is God and we are not. See, Paul in Romans chapter 9 likes illustrations. Last week he used the illustration of two twins, Jacob and Esau, to describe how the salvation of God works. But here, in verses 19 through 23, he uses another illustration. He uses the illustration of a potter and the clay. And this is what he says in verse 21. Has the potter, it's actually a rather absurd question, but he asks it anyway. But he says, has the potter, the owner, the maker, the creator, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Right? We, we look at that illustration, we go, how absurd. Of course the potter, of course the creator, of course the owner of that lump of clay has the right to do with that lump of clay whatever he chooses to do with that lump of clay. And Paul wants to wake us up to this reality. And just as the potter has the right and every right, so does God. Because he is God and we are not. And then he goes on in verses 22 and 23 to flesh out this example. And he says, so if God is like the potter, he's the owner, he's the creator of all things. He creates everything. He says, what if God wanting to show his great power and his glory in verse 22 decided to prepare one vessel for destruction? To make what? To make his glory known. Why? Because he's God and he can do whatever he pleases. And then in verse 23, and then what if God makes another vessel prepared beforehand to experience glory forever? Does he not have that right? Now it's interesting here in verses 22 and 23 that Paul uses the same word prepared. We see in verse 22 a God that is preparing some for what? Some to experience the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, the, 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 the removal of the favor of God. And then in verse 23 we see some prepared by God beforehand, before the foundation of the world, to experience his grace and to experience his favor and his glory. And so we look at that in verse 22 and 23 and we see the same word in English that unfortunately is not the same word in the Greek. Very important if you're asking why did I come to a seminary class this morning instead of worship? This is the importance of that distinction. In verse 22, the word prepared there is in what we call the passive voice. And in verse 23, it is 
in what we call the active voice. So in verse 22, it could be translated that God in verse 22 has simply left some to their own accord, simply what we call in theological circles the doctrine of reprobation, that God simply passes over men and women who are already in a state of sin. We have firmly established, haven't we, in Romans 1 through 8, that we are all conceived in a state of sin, that no one is righteous, no, not one, that we are conceived in sin, lost and gone our own way. And what Paul is saying in verse 22 is that God simply, with great patience and endurance, simply passes over some in verse 22, but in 23 actively prepares others by his divine mercy for eternal salvation. There is no such thing as a morally neutral person. People that experience the wrath and the destruction and the condemnation of God, it's as if God is saying, have thine own way. Have thine own way. Now you say, stop. Stop, pastor, right there. I don't like this. I don't like this God. Uh, This is not the God I've come to know. This is not the God I want to worship. Stop right there. And I want to say to you, no, you stop right there. Because you do not stand in judgment of God, but God stands in judgment of you. You do not sit in the seat of authority where you can dictate and define who God is and how he moves and how he acts. But instead, uh, quite the opposite, God stands in judgment and says, this is how things will be. God is God and we are not. And until we're able to wrap our hearts and our minds and our souls around that glorious truth, we will never be able to fully embrace this great teaching of God's sovereignty in all things. The creature does not look to the creator and say, I will shape you in my image. The creator looks to the creature and says, no, I will shape you in my image. We cannot have a God that we have created in our own image. If you do not hear anything else last week and this week, it is this. I want you to leave knowing this. Romans chapter 9 is Paul's awakening and for some of us a rude awakening to not the God that you want, but it is a rude awakening to the God who is, who is to forever be praised and worshiped. All right, let me pause for a moment. God is God and we are not. Let me pause for a moment and I want to answer a very important question. It is by far the most predominant question that I have received in ministry, and it was the most emailed question this past week after last week's sermon. If God's determined everything and the end is firmly in place, then why bother? Why bother pray? Why bother witness? Why bother, pastor, getting up in the morning? God's figured it all out. I just have to sit back and be idle. That was the number one question I've received in ministry and the number one question that I received this past week. Why pray? Why witness? Why get up in the morning? Here's the reason. It's point number two. God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means to those ends. God is a God that ordains means and ordains ends. Listen to me. 
What we are teaching last week and this week is not fatalism. Fatalism is a heretical philosophy that says this, that the ends have been firmly put in place and our decisions and our life and our choices play no role in the matter of how God works out his ultimate ends. We do not teach fatalism. That is not what we are talking about here. We believe in a God that not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means to those ends. And God has graciously given us things like prayer and evangelism and witnessing and obedience to his word in order to accomplish his great plans. God could have chosen any means possible by which he gets his um, will and he accomplishes his great purposes and he has chosen you to do so. The same Paul who writes this in Romans 9 is the same Paul that waxes eloquent all throughout the other epistles in the New Testament about how we are vessels, about how we are instruments, about how we are used to accomplish God's great ends. And so God is the God that ordains not only the end, but the means to the end. You say there is a guy by the name of John, and John has cancer, and John is going to be cured from cancer three months from now. We believe if that happens, that God has ordained that end. But it also means that God has ordained all of the means to those ends. He has ordained the physicians and the treatment and the prayers that are offered up on behalf of John in order for God to work through those means in order to accomplish those great ends. Why do we pray? Because God uses the prayers of the saints. All throughout the Old Testament, God uses the prayers of the saints in order to accomplish his great ends. And I want to ask a person, the very person that asked me, if God has figured it all out, then why bother praying? And I want to respond back to them. No, the question really is for you. If God is not sovereign, why bother praying at all? Because if you believe in a God that is not in control of all things, then what are you wasting your time? If my God and your God is not in control of all things, then it is a royal waste of time to offer up any prayers to someone who has very little control over the destinies and the future of humanity. But if God is sovereign over all things, should not the doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence drive us to our knees saying, I am not God, but you are. I am not sovereign, but you are. I am in control of nothing, but God, you are in control of all things. Therefore, you are the only one that I can present my prayers and my petitions for. God is not only the God that plans the destination, but he plans and determines the journey to that destination. He ordains not only the ends, but the means to those ends. And then lastly, God is God and we are not. God is a God who ordains the means and the ends. And then lastly, as we return to this passage, what this means for us is utter, utter hopefulness for the Christian if this is true, that God is sovereign from beginning to end, if it is true that there is a bigness and greatness of God in our life and in salvation and on all of the affairs of life, then this only can mean one thing, utter, utter hopefulness 
for the people of God, for the Christian. You see, there are some that believe this, that God has prepared the meal. He has set the banquet table. He has set the great feast of salvation. But then he idly sits back and waits for people to show up. There are some people that believe that he has set the banquet table of salvation and just waits for people to come by their own power, by their own free will. Is there any hope in that? Of a God who is idly waiting in heaven for people to show up? No. Listen to me. There are no wedding crashers in the feast of God and in the feast of heaven. The only reason you come to the table is by divine invitation and appointment. And this should give you utter hopefulness today to know this, whether it be for you or for someone else in your life, regardless of who you are or where you have been, that if you come to Christ, it is because before the foundation of the world, God has set out his banquet table and he has a name card with your name on it reserved for you. It is set in stone. It is firm in place before the foundation of the world and not no matter of wisdom or willpower or freedom on your choice or anyone else's choice can ever disrupt the will of God in the salvation of his people. And that is good news, that we worship a God who is the divine disruptor. When God came down to a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to murder Christians, do you think God asked permission? God came down like a train and knocked him off his feet and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the reason the doctrine of God's sovereignty gives us utter hopefulness this morning is it means this. For the mom or the dad out there this morning that has given up hope on your child and you come in this morning and you say, my child is beyond hope. They're so far gone for the spouse that say, my, my husband, my wife is so far beyond this message and this good news. The doctrine of God's divine sovereignty says this, that your child and your spouse or your parent or your neighbor or your friend is never so far beyond the scope of God's grace and God's mercy because it has nothing to do with them and it has everything to do with God's appointed time and all has everything to do with his divine mercy and divine sovereignty. If God is not sovereign, then you're absolutely right. Your child, your spouse might be beyond hope. So let's all go home. But if God is sovereign, then no one, nobody is ever beyond the gracious hope of a loving God. And what is that hope? Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. This is the utter hopefulness. Not, not a hope we might believe in, not a hope that we think will come to fruition. This is the utter hope of the people of a, that belong to a sovereign God. Only people that belong to a sovereign God can believe these next words. Paul takes from the very prophet Hosea, and he reminds us in verse 25 these words. Those who were not my people... Speaking of the Gentiles, remember the people in the Old Testament that, that were called dogs? Those people. 
Hosea says, those people that were not my people, they will now be called beloved. They will be called. Do you notice that Hosea writes in the emphatic, he doesn't say, I hope they'll be called. He says, they will be. There will be people that were not once mine, that will be mine, and I will call them beloved. Listen to me. It is the sovereign grace of God that gives us the utter hopefulness this morning that regardless, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our life, God's promise to the children of God is forever secure. Cure. You will be my people, and I will call them beloved. You know what's remarkable about the word beloved? The word beloved literally means to be worthy of love. Worthy. Think about that. That God does not look down on his children and say, Yeah, I guess I gotta love you. He looks down upon us and says, You are worthy. You are worthy because of Jesus Christ, worthy of love. And it doesn't stop there in verse 26. Our utter hopefulness is is rooted in this promise. In verse 26, the very place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Metaphor change. No longer my people, but now the sons of the living God. That when God looks down upon us in Jesus Christ, he looks upon us as if we are the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is utter hopefulness in that. Listen to me this morning. The teaching of God's divine sovereignty and providence should not leave us doubting or questioning. If it does, you've missed it. But God's divine sovereignty this morning should leave every single one of us leaving here this morning absolutely amazed, singing along with what the choir sang earlier. And can it be that you would love me? The doctrine of God's sovereignty should leave us on our knees, amazed that a God could love us with that type of love, a love that will never let us go, a love that forever secures us, for all of eternity. Let me end with this. Two weeks ago, I was in the Galleria Mall just south of here, and I was picking something up at the mall. And while I was sitting there, there was another man that was waiting for something as well. He was 77 years old. His name was Paul from Connecticut. And he asked me, as we were both waiting, he asked me, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, no way. So you're too young to be a pastor. (laughs) I said, no, I'm a pastor right up the street, Coleridge Presbyterian Church. And so we started with small talk. And small talk resulted in deep talk. And God gave me the opportunity to share with him. To share with him that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross for his sins. But that that God graciously, although we're sinful, God graciously raised him from the dead and whoever places their faith and trust in him will never die, but have everlasting life. And Paul looked at me and he said, do you really believe that? Do you really know all of that for sure? And I said, Paul, 
I believe in. And without a shadow of a doubt, I believe that it is true. And not only true for me, but it can be true for you as well. He said, well, then I've got to ask this question. I've always wondered this. And with great sincerity and with tears in his eyes, he asked me this question. I've always wondered if one day I'll stand before God and he'll be happy with me. Do you think he could be happy with me? And I was able to say, Paul, because of Jesus, he not only will be happy with you, he will fully embrace you as his favored son, as his favored child forever. Now listen to me. If God is not sovereign, I could not guarantee Paul anything. I could say we all hope so. And because God, if God is not sovereign, I can't offer you any hope this morning. But if God is sovereign over all things, I can stand before Paul. I can stand before you. You can stand before the people in your life. And you can say without a shadow of a doubt, my God reigns and my God rules and my God is in control of all things and therefore that gives me an utter hopefulness that I know that regardless, I know that there is hope beyond hope, regardless of who you are and regardless of what you've done, Jesus paid it all. We don't sing that to be cute. We sing it because it's true. He has paid it all past, present, and future. And so if God is leading you even this morning and he is drawing you, would you come? If you feel compelled this morning to cry out to Jesus, it is only because today he is calling you home. If you feel moved to commit your life to him, it is only because before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly set his sights on you and said, I want you to be my son and daughter. I want you to sit at this great table forever. I want you to place your faith in me because I have moved heaven and earth to be yours, to be your God. If he's calling you home, would you come? He's paid it all.